1928, Ethel Smythe wrote, The exact worth of my music will probably not be known till not remains of the writer but sexless dots and lines on ruled paper. Today we celebrate Pride Month by discussing one of numerous female composers of the past now coming to deserved prominence. I'm Elizabeth Fricke, and this is the Classical Connections Podcast. In the Handbook of Good Society, published in London in 1859, it is said that an English lady without her piano, or her pencil, or her fancy work, or her favorite French authors and German poets, is an object of wonder, and perhaps of pity. Ethel Smythe was born in Kent on April 22, 1858, the fourth child of Major General John Hall Smythe of the Royal Artillery. Like a proper English lady, Smythe had a proper Victorian education, involving studies of French, German, mathematics, history, literature, and music. However, she was also a self-proclaimed tomboy from a young age, and she took pride in her athleticism as an active tennis player, golfer, and rock climber. When she was 12, a new governess who had studied at the Leipzig Conservatorium arrived in her household, introducing the young Smythe to this new world of classical music. Not long after, she became bent on going to Leipzig herself and giving her life to the study of music. Ethel immediately announced her plan to everyone around her, but of course, very few of them took these plans seriously. Damned nonsense, her father would mutter every time she raised the topic. This did not deter the teenaged Ethel, a rebel and fighter born into a conservative household. When she was 17, Ethel began taking music lessons with Alexander Ewing, an officer in the Army Service Corps and composer of the well-known hymn, Jerusalem the Golden. Ewing instructed the ambitious young Ethel in harmonic theories, analyzing her own compositions and introducing her to the musical dramas of Richard Wagner, whose complete ring cycles would premiere at the Bayreuth Festival in 1876. In her personal diary, Ethel confided that her deepest desire was to have her own opera performed in Germany before she was 40. As Ethel's career ambitions continued to grow, she soon realized that she would have to take matters into her own hands. When Ethel was 19, as her well-to-do parents were discussing which drawing room she would be presented at, she announced that it would be pointless to be presented at all, since she intended to go to Leipzig. Her father was absolutely enraged by this proposition, but Ethel held her ground in firm protest, eventually refusing to even go to church or talk to anyone without having her dream fulfilled. Despite his military training, when it came to warfare of this type, the Major General proved no match for Ethel, 
and he eventually had to admit defeat. On July 26, 1877, with the reluctant consent of her father, Ethel set off for Leipzig. At the Leipzig Conservatory, Smythe began studying composition, counterpoint, and other theoretical subjects, but it did not take long for her to become disillusioned with her experiences there. Discouraged by a lower standard of teaching than she had come to expect, Smythe left the conservatory after only a year to continue her studies privately. While she remained in Leipzig, she soon became acquainted with many other significant composers of the day, including Johannes Brahms, Clara Schumann, Antonin Dvorak, Edvard Grieg, and Pyotr Tchaikovsky. On January 26, 1884, Ethel Smythe made her professional debut with the performance of her string quintet in E major, Opus 1, at the Leipzig Gewandhaus. Three years later, her violin sonata in A minor, Opus 7, would also premiere in the same hall. Neither of these works was a critical success, and Smythe would experience her first encounter with sexual musical aesthetics, or the tendency of contemporary critics to only evaluate a woman's compositions in terms of their appropriateness to her gender. Her violin sonata was thus criticized as being, quote, devoid of feminine charm and therefore unworthy of a woman, end quote. Smythe continued to compose on larger and larger scales. She made her debut as a composer of orchestral music with her Serenade in D, performed at the Crystal Palace concerts in 1890. And her Mass in D, performed three years later. But Smythe still had her hopes set on staging a musical drama, and in 1898, her first opera, Fantasio, premiered in Weimar, Germany when she was 39, achieving the dream she had set many years before. Even in her more positive responses, Smythe could rarely escape gendered music criticism, as Tchaikovsky described Smythe in his memoirs as, quote, one of the few women composers whom one can seriously consider to be achieving something valuable in the field of musical creation, end quote. This kind of gendered criticism aimed to keep Smythe and other female composers on the margins of the profession, and coupled with the double standard of sexual aesthetics, she was placed in a double bind, on the one hand, when she composed powerful, rhythmically vital music, it was said that her music lacked feminine charm. On the other, 
When she produced delicate, melodious compositions, she was accused of not measuring up to the artistic standards of her male colleagues. And if her music was deemed a success, she was said to have transcended the limitations of her sex by composing like a man. But what of Ethel Smythe's gendered expressions outside of music? In fact, Smythe was a devoted feminist, and from 1911 to 1913, she became closely involved with the more militant wing of the English suffragette movement led by Emmeline Pankhurst. In 1912, she spent two months in Holloway Prison for throwing rocks at a politician's house, only nine years after the 1903 performance of Der Wald made her the first woman to have a work performed at the Metropolitan Opera. While in prison, her friend Thomas Beecham found Smythe conducting her fellow inmates with a toothbrush in a performance of her March of the Women, the anthem of the suffragette movement. Smythe's experience in prison may have also had a strong influence on the composition of her final major work, The Prison, which premiered in 1931. In 2020, the first recording of this vocal symphony was produced by the Experiential Orchestra and Chorus, and in 2021, it became the first of Smythe's recorded pieces to win a Grammy Award. While Ethel Smythe did have a passionate love affair with her friend and librettist of several of her operas, Henry Bennett Brewster, she was also candid in print about a certain twist in her sexual composition and lifelong attachments to women. In 1892, she wrote to Brewster, quote, I wonder why it is so much easier for me to love my own sex passionately than yours. I can't make it out, for I am a very healthy-minded person, end quote. Smythe is now largely acknowledged by scholars to have been a lesbian, but this label comes with its own set of complications. During the 1920s and 30s in England, it was dangerous for any writer to openly proclaim her lesbianism, especially given prevailing views on homosexuality as deviancy. The concept of lesbian to differentiate women with a shared sexual orientation changed drastically throughout the 20th century, and in her essay, Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Existence, Adrian Rich coined the phrase lesbian continuum to identify a range of erotic and emotional relationships between women. This notion might even seem old-fashioned to some now, as Julia Penelope later attempted to redefine the meaning of being lesbian as, quote, one who resists efforts to make her into a woman, one who defies the male descriptions and prescriptions that would limit her possibilities, one who refuses the very foundations of heteropatriarchal reality, end quote. In this context, lesbianism could represent more than just a physically sexual practice, but also a refusal of the cultural definitions of womanhood. Smythe rejected the patriarchal norms of marriage and more or less conformed to the contemporary stereotype of the lesbian as masculine woman. 
She considered prowess and sport healthy and natural for women, even though they were both traditionally identified with masculinity during the Victorian era. In the words of Elizabeth Wood, reckless physical energy, sexual appetite, and craving for pleasure and love were driving forces in Smythe's creativity, and her love affairs with women such as Emmeline Pankhurst and writer Virginia Woolf were fairly well documented. By the end of her life, Ethel Smythe was a prolific composer of six operas, ten orchestral works, six string quartets, and numerous other works of various genres. In 1922, Smythe was made Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, and in 1926, she became the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate from Oxford University. Despite near-constant criticism, Ethel Smythe relentlessly made a name for herself in a male-dominated field when it was incredibly difficult to do so. But more than this, she spent her entire life defying traditional standards of gender and sexuality with a militant spirit, even in a time when it was unacceptable. Years later, we continue to remember Ethel Smythe as the toothbrush-wielding, heroic protagonist in the romantic drama of her own life. this podcast, or if you have any questions or suggestions, check out IU Classical Connections on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.